Welcome to the Book Society podcast. This is our first episode, and my guest is also my mom, the amazing author, speaker, novelist, memoirist, Puerto Rican, Esmeralda Santiago, from my childhood home in Katona, New York, and I'm here in Chatsworth, California. So the book we're going to talk about today is a book that Ms. Santiago, I can't call you by your first name, mom, this is a book that my mom, (laughs) Esmeralda, picked out, and it's called There, There by Tommy Orange. And we actually started with a different book called Housemaid of Dawn by M. Scott Mama Day. And this is There, There by Tommy Orange. We started reading Housemaid of Dawn, which I guess you had read years ago. And I found it to be just too, like, non-contiguous for me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't yeah. really get into it. And then you suggested that we try There, There instead, which was also by a Native American author, Tommy Orange. And I loved it. It's a great yeah. book. So let me start with why did you pick this book? Why I first picked House Made of Dawn Fur, because that was the first option that we had. In the 70s, my husband, your father, Frank Cantor, made a series of films in the Great Plains, and M. Scott Mamaday was the narrator for a couple of those films. In one of them, he very much speaks about his Kiowa background. And I have never forgotten, first of all, his beautiful voice (laughs) and how melodious it was and how poetic he was in speaking about his his own people. So I read the book back then in the early 70s, I would get the mid 70s. And I hadn't read it since. But when you and I were talking about doing this, I thought he was the first Native American writer to get a Pulitzer Prize. And then we get a whole other generation of Native American writers in Tommy Orange. He was a shortlisted for the Pulitzer, but somebody else got the prize. And I just thought it was really interesting to see the evolution of Native American writing in some ways, but also because I really wanted to understand what a young Native American man is writing about. I read several of the women Native American writers, but I wasn't as familiar with the men. So it was a curiosity for me. That's why I chose both of them. I had read Tommy Orange when it first came out a couple of years ago, and I was blown away by it. The book really is about there and there. And it was fascinating to me that it captured the title, but also the placement, the landscape, and the difference between that and House Made of Dawn. Yeah, so there, there, the phrase comes up a couple times in the book, but it's in reference to a Gloria Steinem quote about Oakland saying there's no there, there, which I guess she was referring to the fact that it had changed so much since her childhood, but hipsters use it to justify the gentrification of the neighborhood, that it's not a real neighborhood, so we can just move in here and kick everyone out. And then there's also a Radiohead song called There, There. That, that same character, Dean Oxendine, is listening to. There might be spoilers, but, you know, it's the kind of book that even if you know what it's about, you should still read it. So did you see any parallels with your own work in this? Oh, well, that's really interesting. I wasn't really thinking about that at all. <laughs> but I guess I connect to different aspects of both of them. With Mama Day, I was just stunned by the descriptions of the landscape. He grew up in northern New Mexico. And from a very young age, he had a horse. I never did that, but he did. And he just rode all over this area and knows the landscape intimately. And so 
I just loved the descriptions of the landscape, of the weather patterns, the way the snow falls outside in the plain and how it feels when you're actually enclosed in your little home with the fire going. It was just fantastic. I loved it. I loved that aspect of it. And I loved that sense of place. There was there. There was a there for him that he was very, very intimately connected and who was very poetic about it. You know, granted, the Pulitzer, I think, was in 1969. So some of the language, of course, reflects the mid-20th century style of writing by men at the time. And whenever I read non-contemporary books, let's say, I really try to think of it in terms of what's happening in the culture at the time and how it affects the language. And so for that period of time, Mama Day was writing from a Native American perspective. He actually considers himself a poet, not a prose writer, even though he's written several novels and children's books. So I went into it thinking a poet writing a novel (laughs) kind of thing. And so I connected to that poetic spirit, which I really tried to capture in my first memoir because it was from the perspective of a child. He has several children there, but somehow I think it was rougher for him than it was for me somehow, even though he had much greater connection to the landscape. I write about landscape only when it makes sense for the characters. But in The Housemaid of Dawn, the landscape is a character in a big way. And I really appreciated that about that because here we are, you know, where I live. I don't have that expansive views that he writes about. It was so beautiful how well he captured it. And the language is expansive. He uses language in an expansive way to make the landscape be as expansive as it is. So I love that about it. And then you get to there, there, to Tommy Orange, who's a contemporary young man who's more connected to a different literary tradition. The landscape is Oakland. It has a completely different feel and texture. It's grittier. The language is like the landscape. And even though I think this book is very poetic in many ways, it's grittier, of course, because that's the nature of the lives that he's writing about. Instead of, you know, riding on the open plains and using rabbits to bait eagles and all this (laughs) crazy stuff, he talks about riding through Oakland on his bicycle. And all of the detailed descriptions in there there of places are all places in Oakland, California, and urban places. Some of the book takes place in in a hotel. So they're describing the West, but it's like just in this conference room that could be anywhere. Yes, exactly. And I think that that's really wonderful in comparing these two books, because when Day is writing about his characters being in Los Angeles, he doesn't have as many ways to describe. Yeah, he just describes it like the way they do in the movies. Exactly. It's so interesting. You really understand. This is a man who really sees and understands and knows how to live in the northern New Mexico landscape. And that L.A. is really a foreign land for him. And and he still hasn't quite connected to it yet. Even though I guess as an adult, Mamaday has lived in California for most of his life, has been a professor at Stanford and a couple of other places. But somehow he's still connected 
to that other place that is there, miles away. It still seems alien to me. I live out here now. I live, obviously, in Los Angeles, and I live in Chatsworth, which if anyone wants to look on a map, I live in the Rocky Peak area, which is these crazy rock formations. It doesn't look like Earth. It is a very otherworldly place. And from my house and from the rocks just adjacent to my house, I have views for you know, 20 or 30 miles in every direction. And that is a distance. When I lived in New York, when I lived in the Northeast, I don't think there's anywhere really you can see that far, but you don't get to see in that distance. And when I moved out here, it really changed my perspective. Yeah. So your question about whether it connected to my writing or, you know, the landscapes that I write about, one of the things that I often think about and when I'm writing about my life and my experiences here is the landscape that I grew up in the middle of a rural part of Puerto Rico. There really wasn't a horizon. I mean, my mother used to say it was a jungle, basically, because she was from the city. And for her, this was like, where am I? It's all nothing but trees here kind of thing. And I have lived in the Great Plains, actually. I lived in northern Texas for a long time. And the first thing that I appreciated about being there was these distant horizons. You know, you cannot tell how far something is. Can you imagine, you know, when the first Europeans who arrived here and you go past Indiana and then all of a sudden face this huge, open, vast expanse. It's like the ocean, which it was, I guess, at one time. And every time that I've been on the edge of the Great Plains, I'm always thinking back to what a sight that must have been for those people coming from those crowded cities in Europe than going across the woods of the Northeast and going across these mountains and then arriving at that point where you really can't even conceive that there's an end to it, especially from their perspective. You know, they're probably no higher than 10 feet if they're on a horse. That must have been the way it felt to the first astronauts. You know? No European had ever seen anything like it. And there was no stories about it. There was no frame of reference for it. And I think about that all the time when I'm out here. One of the other books that we've read for the water episode was about John Wesley Powell, who got a wild hair up his ass to go explore the American West and just took a boat down the Colorado River. It's crazy. The Colorado River is very silty and it was alternatingly placid and then insane rapids. And also people live there, not a lot of people, but there were Indians that were there successful Indians have been in the Oakland Bay Area for a really long time. And when Powell was exploring the West, he would make notes about the local Indians that he found. And he would say, yeah, they're skinny. They're malnourished. And so we shouldn't settle here because obviously these people who know how to live here can barely survive here. But when he got to the San Francisco Bay, he found fat Indians and decided that that would be a great place to settle because of the salmon runs. So there was just abundant food they had been there for who knows how many thousands of years. Oakland, more than Los Angeles and Southern California, is a place that has been able to sustain human life for thousands and thousands of years. I have to say that when I read There, There, it was a surprise to me that there had been a very established, long established community of Native Americans in that part, and particularly in Oakland, where I have visited, but I had no clue about that at all. And then the whole concept of the urban Native American, as opposed to in Mama Day's book, In the House Made of Dawn, his characters are kind of in that transition stage between 
the Native Americans who still had horses and still celebrated their traditions and their dances, and they still ate the same kind of food that maybe for generations their ancestors ate and they valued them. They still remembered the prayers and the songs and the dances and the clothes that they wore. And then you get to Tommy Orange's generation and yeah, their horse is now a bike or the Bart, you know. So I think that that's why it was so interesting to read these two books, one after the other. And I'm glad that I actually read Mama Day first because it really kind of set me up for an understanding about this spirituality, for example, of the Native Americans, that even though it's not quite as strong, perhaps, as in Mama Day's work, because he's writing about... Native Americans who are not urban-based. They're still living in pueblos or little villages and so on. But in Tommy Orange's book, these are young men carrying iPhones. and They're just kids. And yet, this very strong connection to being Native American, a lot having to do with the white gaze of who they are. They're very aware, you know, like that one character, I think it's Dean, who might be Native American or might not. So he's suspicious from other people from both sides. You know, the Native Americans are suspicious of him and the Anglos are suspicious of him because they can't place him. And I thought that that was really well done. And I thought it was really important for those of us who don't know about those communities to understand some of the internal struggles that these people must be dealing with day in and day out. Yeah, I mean, I have some experience with that as a Puerto Rican who was raised in Westchester County. I don't speak Spanish very well, despite your best efforts, but I still identify with that culture. You took me there every year for the first 15 years of my life, and I kept it going until I moved to Los Angeles. But while I do feel connected to Puerto Rico and I feel connected to Puerto Rican culture, it's hard to feel like a part of it because I don't speak the language. I've never lived there. And there aren't that many Puerto Ricans in Los Angeles for me to commune with. And yeah, when I walk into a room, there's this scene in the book where Dean Oxendine, which is a great name, goes to get a scholarship and he thinks that they're not going to know he's Indian and that this is going to hurt him. And I've also had that experience. I'm working on a book, as you know, and my agent asked me if he could play up my Puerto Rican-ness because my name (laughs) professionally is Lucas Cantor. I don't know what we're going to do about that, but when I did a concert in Mexico, I surprised the audience by introducing my piece in Spanish. (laughs) And I got it so close. I said some things. I said, well, I hope I enjoy it because I got the tenses (laughs) wrong. Um, (laughs) Let's get back to Tommy Orange and M. Scott Mamaday. So stylistically, this was really my question for Tommy Orange. What is this? What would you call this style? I would say it's contemporary fiction, and I would say it's urban fiction, obviously, It's very contemporary because he really refers to the culture as we live it now, not the way Mama Day is covering, you know, the first 50 years of the 20th century. So it's contemporary fiction that's based on urban experience, even though some of these characters are very much still connected to this ancient tradition that yes, it's been watered down. There's a scene or several scenes when they're wearing their traditional regalia, right? And so I envisioned that a lot of this stuff is plastic. You know, in Mama Day, 
his characters are actually going up into the mountains and they're catching the birds so they can get the right feather, the right shade of blue of the feather. And you know, then they go to the, get the actual eagle, you know. But the characters in Tommy Orange's book, these guys can really literally walk into Walmart and get stuff that they can put together, an approximation of a tradition. It's a regalia from Amazon. Yeah, so that part of it makes you feel, well, at least there's an interest for them to continue these traditions. But then there's also a sadness about how the minute that you're buying the feathers who come from China (laughs) and they're made out of plastic, you know, you have lost the connection to the bird. And so that since their culture are so connected, and both of these writers speak a lot about the sky and flying and birds and the sounds of, you know, birds singing. In fact, a character in there, there, as he's dying, that's what he hears is the singing of birds, even though he's a kid grown up in the middle of Oakland hearing traffic. So there's that part of it also that makes you sad. You say they have an approximation of a tradition, whereas Mama Day was still of that generation who actually lived a lot of those traditions, yet it also had been watered down a lot from where it had been. Yeah, I wonder if the Tommy Orange characters, I mean, they're fictional in Mama Day's characters, I guess, to some degree, were based in reality. But I wonder if the Tommy Orange characters 70 years from now will seem like wise old Indians from another culture who were more connected with their culture than their contemporaries at that time. And, you know, how far away are Mama Day's Indians from actual pre-European Plains Indians. My guess is that they're very, very, almost unrecognizably far away because Mamaday's book is 50 years old at this point, almost. It seems like this is from another simpler time, which I guess in a way it is, you know, it was a time before smartphones and so on and the internet. And When we say the word simpler is because we feel our lives are so complicated, but really when you think about it, you know, Don Francisco, one of the characters in Mamaday's book, he has to go into town to get water. So that's not a simple process, you know. So I don't think it was that simple, actually, to live, you know. And to make his cornmeal, you know, he had to go on the first moon of a particular month to go and break the land. What we think of as simple really is way more complicated, you know. And I speak from experience because I grew up with no electricity, no running water. And I'm telling you, it was not a simple time. It was very complicated. Everything that you did, you had to think ahead. If I wanted to have lunch, I remember as a kid going out into the garden and dig out the tubers, you know, the yautia or the batata or whatever. And then you have to bring it in and you have to wash it and then you have to peel it. It's like a big deal. No microwaving (laughs) or defrosting something. It's always interesting to me when contemporary people think of those days as being simpler. Things are a lot easier and simpler right now than they were now. But I think internally, we are different people. Our emotional landscape is completely different. And what's important for us is very different from what Mama Day is writing about or what I experienced as a kid in rural Puerto Rico in the mid-50s. So I'm going to disagree with you there. I think that what is going on internally, if great literature has shown us anything, it's that that is always the same. 
you know, the circumstances of our lives are different, but I know that your first choice for this podcast was Middlemarch, and I'm sorry someone got to it before you, but I've read it recently, and just reading about these, you know, fictional characters from the early 19th century, they have the same problems, desires, wishes, issues, and neuroses that we have today. Their life is, yeah, like you said, it's simpler in that it doesn't involve technology and smartphones and, you know, communications with people throughout the world, but it's also more complicated because to get anywhere, you had to walk there and to talk to someone, either you or a servant had to be in their presence and hand them a note. Well, that's true. But I think we have many more resources with dealing our emotional landscape in a way that your grandmother and her grandmother and Mama Day's grandfather and going back, I think that those days might have been simpler in the sense of that we didn't deal with our emotions in the same way. It's all much more contained to whoever was around us. Right now, we're out in the world with our neuroses. And I think that that, whether that's good or bad, it depends on what it does to you, really. You know, some people get overwhelmed. The kinds of things that these young people in Tommy Orange's book, the same issues are happening in Mama Day's book. And there's maybe two generations before. But I think it's how much more public these things are, how much more people can talk about them and how sometimes it helps and sometimes it actually makes things worse because sometimes you get engaged in things that you shouldn't be doing. There's a part of you that says, I should not be doing this. And yet there's the pressure in the case of some of the characters and they're there. They know better. They know better than to do this. And yet they do it because there's this pressure to do it, you know, and I think in the previous generation, when there was not that same kind of pressure coming from so many directions, that didn't keep the characters in Mama Day from doing stupid things. They do, but somehow the thinking is different about the things that they do. So a murder in Mama Day is still steeped into the myth of the culture, right? Whereas a killings in there, there are not necessarily due to or connected by. It's just... Well, they're rooted in a different culture. Yeah, it's a different culture, and it's a much wider one. The biggest difference, I guess, between these two books is the murder. The murder in Mamaday is really connected to the Indian culture and the old ways, and the murder in there, there is really connected to the urban culture. And even the motivations are completely contemporary, whereas the motivations in Mamaday are ancient. But also access. It's so much easier to kill somebody in Tommy Orange's book than it is to kill somebody in Mamaday's because there's somehow, from what I understand from the book anyway, is that there was still a moral core to what killing means, you know. And somehow the morality of killing people it doesn't have the same weight as you have in the Mama Day. And I think that is cultural. And I think it's historic because of who we are and how maybe some of Tommy Orange's characters, they didn't go out to kill their own game, you know. <laughs> For them, it's all video games kind of thing. And so it's disconnected from the song of life as opposed to the characters in Mama Day who may do awful, awful things but they still have like a moral core that completely burdened them. They carry that burden in a completely different 
way than I think these characters do, except for all those women at the end, the older generation women at the end. They're the ones who are carrying that burden because they are transitional generation between Mama Day's characters and their children and grandchildren. Well, that really reinforces, I think, the idea that this is really all about perspective, which generation is more connected to the Earth Opal, the grandmother, we first meet her as a kid in Oakland, in what is, you know, more or less contemporary Oakland. It's the Oakland of the 1970s, I guess, or the 1980s. So we meet her as a kid who doesn't feel connected to Indian stuff at all, except in the way that she talks to her teddy bear. And by the time we, you know, get to the end of the book, she's the grandmother who has all this wisdom. I wonder if that's just the circle of human life is that, you know, you get old, you become wise. You have had more experiences. You have lived longer. I think you do begin to, at a certain point in your life, as you get older, you actually do look back at your ancestors. As you lose your parents, for example, you know, when I lost my parents, I was very aware that their entire history has now disappeared. As you get older, you become very aware of those kinds of things. And so characters like Opal, you do begin to resonate back there. And then you start holding on to those kinds of things that you know are still left (laughs) in your history or in your memory or in these traditions. And I noticed that in myself, you know, as I get older, I look back in a completely different way than I did when I was a much younger woman. And I want to know about things that are lost. I'm very conscious of that, of the losses, the waves of history, how they come and go. And it's really interesting to think in terms of the characters in Middlemarch are very much like us, right? In that they're dealing with the same stuff. But I think it's so interesting that a lot of the same issues in that book that was written 120 or 30 years ago are in these two books. They're here 100 years later we're dealing with a lot of the same kinds of questions, even though these characters are completely different and have very different lives, different histories, different traditions. And yet, for me, it's just, you know, the beauty of being a humanist. That's humanity. (laughs) Well, I think that is a good place to wrap it up for today. I'm going to end by asking you the one question that I'm going to ask everyone, which is to recommend a book by a living author and a book by a deceased author. For people who have not read Middlemarch, <laughs> I mean, obviously, <laughs> because it's surprising to me how many people have not read it. It's a daunting read. It's a big, fat book. For those of us who love fat books are wonderful. And the book by a living author that I'm actually reading right now because it's been on my stack for a while and I just finally am getting it to it is by a writer named Marise Conde. She's from Guadeloupe. And the book is called I Tituba. And Tituba, if those of you who remember the Salem witch trials, she was the woman who the girls accused of doing magic. And so Marise Conde took that character and decided to write about her, her perspective of that experience. And she's a marvelous writer, originally in French, and so I'm reading it in translation. And I'm very, very excited about going further. This writer has written many, many other books, but this is the one that I have been saving for a cold and stormy night like we're facing in the next couple of days. I almost did a musical about Tichuba. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you should read the book. 
Yeah, she, well, I mean, I started it with a writer, and this was her project, and we just, you know, like almost every musical, it just kind of didn't happen. All right, so Middlemarch and I Tituba. Marise Conde, I Tituba. Thank you.